Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Jerry. Hey, Jerry, it's Ben. Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. Me too. And how fitting it is that we're the hosts of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely Ben White and myself, Jerry Bunkowski. We're going to discuss with you some contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've heard through the years. We got a lot of great stories for this show, by the way. I want to make you so you definitely want to tune in for the whole show. You learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. So, Ben, how was your Thanksgiving? Hope it was good. It was very good. Went down and visited my aunt Edna Ruth Truett down in uh, Carrollton, Georgia. Visited some cousins and just had a wonderful Thanksgiving and uh, have made the old uh, trek down there. But we did it early, early on Thanksgiving morning and saw a few taillights. We figured everyone would be at Grandma's uh, already, and that was a nice trip. Nice little uh, piece of advice I got from someone, and, and um, kudos to them because uh, it was a nice trip down and came back on Saturday. Had some a little bit of traffic there. We felt like we were in the Daytona 500 coming back because I felt like everybody was trying to run over me, but I had to just keep keep going with the crowd. But, yes, we had a wonderful Thanksgiving. How about you? Yeah, ours was pretty good. I mean, my oldest daughter, she lives about a half hour from me, and she held the, the Thanksgiving. So um, she, for the first time, she hasn't seen my her, her sister, my other daughter, um, in almost two years because of COVID. So they, uh, Sarah, my second, my younger daughter, she flew up here from Charlotte with her fiance, Kelvin Shaw. So, um, you know, the Sarah and Heather had already, I mean, Heather had already met Kelvin, but the rest of the family had not, uh, mm-hmm. other than my wife and myself. So, you know, my son got to meet him. Um, you know, Sarah got to see my grandson, Eddie, for the first time, which was really cool. Um, you know, we had uh, Heather's in-laws were there too. So it was really a good time. We, you know, we really, yeah. uh, we really had a, you know, it was one of those, it was, it was a unique Thanksgiving in the sense that uh, my, my son-in-law, Steve, Heather's husband, he's like the family cook. I mean, he's the one that just, he takes on all these meals and does a great job. And he did a lot of um, unique dishes for this, this uh, Thanksgiving. A lot of things that, you know, we normally uh, don't have a lot of, you know, like kind of like vegan kind of stuff, kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it was really, really good. So, uh, you know, even though, you know, I had gastric bypass about three years ago and, you know, I've lost a lot of weight and I'm not supposed to eat a lot. I, I kind of overindulged just a little bit. I mean, but it was, it was darn good. It was darn good food. So good to see everybody. And, you know, it was good that uh, Sarah and Kelvin saw Eddie, my, my grandson, like I said, and then uh, Kelvin met my son Bradley for the first time as well, too. So it, it was a good time though. So I really, yeah, well, well, the fun part for me was 
get to sit around the fire and, uh, you know, we did watch some football, but a lot of talk about the 2022 NASCAR season too. A lot of, you know, everybody wants to know what the, what's the hot scoop and who's going to drive which car and who do I think is going to be great for the 2022 season. And, and I had to tell him, you know, it, it goes from year to year. You're just not real sure who is going to be great because we've seen some drivers do so well the season before, and then some drivers just didn't do all that well the next year. So, but we talked about the new Gen 7 car. We talked mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the the playoffs and who we thought was going to make it. I'm, and I had to tell them, hey, it's a long season, 26 races before we get to the playoffs. Right. And now that we have new cars and drivers, a few drivers switching, to, you know, different teams and things like that. So, hey, it's, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. You know, I get I think a lot of people get this way. They're they have a little bit of burnout at towards the end of the season and. Maybe it takes some Thanksgiving turkey and a few Christmas presents to get us, <laughs> you know, back to back to saying, okay, now we got to go, got to go, man, got to get back to Daytona. I think, what is it, 69 days, 68 days or something like that. So right. I'm already ready to get some Florida sunshine in me and ready to go to Daytona. I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready to get going. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you, you just said something that kind of jacked something in my mind. And, and I know we didn't talk about this off the air, but I wanted to, I thought I might as well bring it up now since we're yeah. talking about it. You know, you're, you, we got a point now where everybody's still, you know, in kind of awe of Kyle Larson, what he did, mm-hmm. you know, the 10 wins, the championship, all that kind of thing. And, you know, obviously the, the number one question people are asking, can he do it again in, in 2022? But, you know, a lot of older drivers, you know, guys who are, you know, nearing the end of their career, <coughs> excuse me, I have to wonder if Larson and some other younger drivers have great seasons in 2022, will that hasten the retirement of guys like uh, Kevin Harvick, who I think is what, 44, I think he is, uh, Kurt Bush is 40, I think he's pushing 45, if I'm not mistaken, you know, there's a number of drivers that you know, are in the, in the forties. And I'm wondering if, you know, especially a guy like Harvick, I mean, he's the first one that comes to my mind because, you know, here's a guy who led the series in 2020 with nine wins, 2021 doesn't get any wins, a goose egg, zero wins for Kevin Harvick. And, you know, you got to wonder, or I'm wondering if he's even wondering, you know, has he lost a step? You know, is he starting to think, well, maybe 2022 might be my last year, or maybe 2023 might be my last year. And you have to wonder, I mean, do you think a lot of these guys are starting to think a little bit more seriously about retirement because of Larson? I mean, he's 29, going to be 30 uh, here. I think he turns 30 in the next few months, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But, you know, guys like him, and of course, you got all the young guns, you know, that are, uh, you know, still that are you know coming up through the the system, so to speak. Um, what do you think about the guys that you know are getting older? I mean, you got Martin Truex Jr. I think he's pushing forty. Uh, Kyle Busch, he's he's only what thirty five or thirty six, so he's got a, still a ways to go. But you know, I, I have to wonder if we're going to see some of the the bigger names that you know may decide to call it quits either after this coming season or maybe after twenty twenty three. Tell you what, Jerry, I think we need to ask that question right after the Darling, the first Darlington race, because I think these guys, these older <laughs> guys right now, they're they're thinking, okay, Christmas is coming, but I really, really want to go to the shop and I really want to you know, slide on some jeans and a sweatshirt. And I want to go over there and look at that Gen 7 car a little closer because right. I, I, I'm really excited. If I was a driver, I'd say, and I'm, I'm that age, 
even though I'm not that age, I'm quite <laughs> quite a bit older. I'm about 20 years older than that. But I would be wanting to slide on the old tennis shoes and jeans and say, I just want to go over there and look at that thing now that I have some time. I want to go sit in it. I want to look at it. I want to see what it feels like. I'd be itching to drive it and see what I really feel because that's the next conquest. That's the next mountain to climb right. before I would want to do that. But give me till about Darlington and see if I love it or hate it. And, uh, and let me see how these guys are going to spank me or if I'm going to spank them in that car, because, you know, and Darlington, I, the reason I say Darlington is because I think that's the ultimate, uh, test of the driver and car combination, because that's a, it's a hard racetrack to drive. Right. And, uh, that, that particular car, it might be, it might feel really smooth to me. I might, I might fall in love with it and keep in mind, I'm trying to think of this as a driver. And I'm going around Darlington. I'm boy, I'm just really doing, having fun in this car and it's going to be great. Or I might say, man, I hate this thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, it's, you know, I, I wish I was on a beach somewhere right now. Yep. I, you know, I've, I've done it, been there, done it. I've done that. I'm ready to go. So yeah, I think that's the ultimate test. I think we, we posed that question to say Truex and Harvick and, and some of the guys that are, you know, at least they wouldn't, they may not admit it, but maybe they've thought about it. And, uh, that, that's the answer to the question, because I, I know at least going into Daytona, they want to see how that thing handles. And, uh, that's the very, I think that's the first big ultimate test of the car to see how it does down there. And who knows, they might say, boy, I'm, I'm feeling 20 years younger now. I love this thing. So we'll see how that, how that goes. Well, you know, you've seen so many incarnations of cars over the years. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you've been, you've seen all these cars, you know, uh, evolve over the last 40, 50 years. So you're the perfect guy for me to ask this question of, you know, from what you've read, what you've seen, what you've heard, what the drivers have said so far, what's your take on the next gen uh, car? I mean, is it, is it going to be what NASCAR hopes it'll be? Will it, you know, blow the fans away? Will it blow the drivers away? I mean, what, what's your early scouting report before we start, you know, the first race, we have the, you know, the clash out in, in Los Angeles. But I mean, after that, we obviously have the Daytona 500, but I mean, what, what's your thoughts about the new car and everything you've heard? What, 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 what how are you kind of approaching that for, for next season? Uh, I just think it's a huge, huge change as far as cars go, especially when I look at the tires, when I look at the wheels, when I look at the one bolt in the center of the wheels, we've never had anything like that in the history of NASCAR ever, ever. It's always been the five uh, lug bolt pattern that we've always had back in the days when you would take them out of the garage and take the hook caps off of them and tape up the headlights and, and change the oil, put gas in it and basically go on the racetrack. Right. We've never, ever come across something like that. And you know, back in, in, in when the days of bolting the door shut with a take your belt off, <laughs> and just, right, and, right. you know, and tight, just take, put, take, take your belt off and tighten up the doors and make sure they don't fly open. I mean, that's that's how far back we're going here. That That's new, very, very new, very different. And, uh, you know, the chassis on these things, and you got to go all the way back to the mid-60s when Holman Moody came out with a chassis that was not a normal chassis underneath the race car. I mean, yeah, it was a classic uh, stock car chassis, but that's in the days when they took the bodies off of the cars and, and built the, the roll cages uh, in into the chassis and then put the car back on top mm -hmm. of it. And before that, they were basically bolting the, uh, or welding the uh, roll cages into the cars 
so that was that was different. And I think this is the most evolutional type change we've seen to a race car in the history of NASCAR. So, yeah, I, I think the jury's still out a little bit on, on the car. I think the drivers feel that way a little bit. I think the fans definitely feel that way. Um, and I do a little bit. I want to see how this car is going to perform on the racetrack. I think it was kudos to Goodyear for, for building a tire that could handle the speeds that they're going to be racing. I mean, think about what I'm saying here. The, the, the sidewalls on these cars, are, I mean, on these tires are so, so different than what we've seen in, since the, the race tire was developed uh, in the early uh, 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, when the sidewalls were massive back in those days. Uh, and then we went through the uh, the periods where the tires would grow, the tire staggers would grow. And they would, and that was some that was the big secret. You know, Harry Hyde, the the great uh, late Harry Hyde crew chief for Bobby Isaac and so many great drivers, he discovered that when you could measure the circumference of a race tire because it would grow because of the heat. And a lot mm-hmm. of people weren't thinking about that. So, but now you're looking at the sidewalls of these tires, and they're not very big at all there mm-hmm. i don't know what the inches are but they're very very much like a street tire so that took a lot of engineering to get that to work and so i think that's one of the biggest changes to it and and i, I don't know it's just it just seems so different and more like a sports car to me i've not looked at one very closely to be honest with you right. but it, it just seems so different so i want to see what it's how it's going to perform on the racetrack how it's going to draft uh, how it's going to, how the drivers are really, truly going to feel about it. And the big test is, of course, first is going to be Daytona, 40 or forty cars, uh, 10, 12, 15 car packs. How's that going to work? So they don't know, and they're anxious to find out. And we'll see how that performs at 200 miles an hour for 200 laps. We'll, we'll see how it does. You took the words out of my mouth. I was going to ask you about it. You know, it does, the next gen car does have a, a definite sports car feel like it. And I think that, you know, that's by design because the way I look at it is, you know, up until last year, up until 2020, you know, we only had two road course races a year. Last year we had seven and we know we're going to continue to have that seven going forward. Might even have more. You never know. I mean, there's a lot of talk about maybe adding another road course race somewhere along the way, maybe even a street race. If they can figure out where they could run it, you know, in what city would, would welcome NASCAR to do it. But you know, the next gen car from what I've seen, and again, I'm only going by, you know, what I've read, what I've seen on, on, uh, you know, on video and things that it definitely has a much more sports car feel like to it. And, you know, I think that NASCAR in doing that was very smart because this kind of car is so much more um, adaptable, I guess is probably the best way to phrase it. Because, you know, when you look at the previous uh, generations of cars, they were all pretty much the same in the sense that they were, you know, quote unquote stock cars. You know, they, they, they were built primarily for ovals. This kind of a car though is built for everything. And I can't, it's, it's, it's kind of like the, um, you know, the uh, continuation, if you will, of, you know, the, what uh, NASCAR kind of started back uh, when they had the, uh, um, um, what it was they called the, um, uh, the gen six car, you know, they, 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 they thought that, you know, that this was, they were kind of moving in that direction, but they weren't moving so much in that direction. They were moving, you know, incrementally, I guess is probably the best way to phrase it. Now, this is a full-on sports car. So, you know, if, if for whatever reason, and I, I, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm trying to not to say this in any kind of a bad fashion, but you know, if we go through another period like we did in 2020, where a lot of races were canceled, a lot of races were moved to different tracks, you know, if we have to move from a uh, an oval or maybe like a Pocono, a tri-oval to a road course, or we have to add a few more road course races to fill in the void if we do lose a, a couple of tracks because of, of a you know pandemic or what have you, this is the perfect car to do it because it's so adaptable. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. And, you know, something, another point uh, to make here too, Jerry, is uh, if you look at Detroit and you look at the automakers, they've sort of gone in the past couple of three years to more of an SUV sort of uh, a mindset for general thinking mm -hmm. as far as what they're trying to sell. And so I don't think we're in a position right now in NASCAR to start racing SUVs. <laughs> I mean, really. And so, I mean, we could and right. everything, according to what I've read and on some several websites, uh, you know, there everything, anything's on the table, even yep. flying, flying race cars, right. from what I understand. Right. So, hey, there, hey, somebody somewhere heard me say that and they said, Eureka, let's start racing SUVs. <laughs> so nothing's off the table. But what this reminds me of is back in 1980, uh, 78, 79, 80, we were racing these really big motorhome like style Monte Carlos and yeah. Oldsmobiles. That's what my wife calls. I've got a 1969 Delta 88 convertible that I'm still working on restoring. And she calls it the motorhome <laughs> and for, for right reasons, because in 69, the cars were really big and right. all through the seventies, they were huge. And so they were, we were racing Monte Carlos, Oldsmobiles, uh, you know, those really big cars. Well, NASCAR realized that Detroit wasn't making those anymore. They were going to downsize to the smaller uh, Cutlasses and the smaller Monte Carlos and those types of cars, the Ford Thunderbirds. And so this is what it reminds me of is that that type of time they said, okay, we're going to let you run the those cars one more time at Riverside International Raceway, the road course. And then when we get to Daytona in 1980 for the Daytona 581, it has to go from a 115-inch wheelbase car to a 110-inch wheelbase car. Right. So they're like, oh, my Lord, how are we going to do this? I mean, it was a major, major change like what we're going through. This is what I, I sort of equate this to. Mm -hmm. And so these teams were looking at the rule book and having to really do some serious thinking and you know, I was talking to Eddie Wood about this recently at Charlotte Motor Speedway a month or so back, and they were thinking, how are we going to transform from this car to this car? Because it was a major undertaking, not to mention it was a little bit lighter, and they still had to come up with the 3,700 pounds for this car. So they took it to Daytona, and the cars, now to see if you can follow what I'm saying here, the cars were flipping from left to right, not right to left. The wind was getting under them. This is before roof flaps. This is before all that technology came out. Mm -hmm. So these cars were going down the back stretch at Daytona. And so the driver's side of the car, if the wind got under them anywhere at all, the driver's side of the car was flipping first. So, I mean, it didn't happen to all the cars, but it happened to, there was a driver named John Anderson got had a problem. Connie Saylor had a problem. And they would flip and the driver's side of the car would go to the asphalt first and they'd do barrel rolls. Mm -hmm. So I remember there was one unique quote that Bobby Allison said to the media. I'll never forget this. He said, so they said, Bobby, how's the car doing? What, what are you feeling? He said, 
right now, I don't even want the seagulls out there with me. <laughs> I remember him saying that because it was so, so unstable. So they had to come up with ways to make this car work. So here's a quick story that just came to mind. Everyone, again, was running the Oldsmobiles, uh, which was a Cutlass. They had the Monte Carlo for Chevrolet. They had the, the Ford Thunderbird. I'm trying to think of anything, uh, all the others. Well, Davey Allison, of all people, went to his dad and said, I have found something you need to think about. Okay, what is that? Look at the rule book, and what do you see that stands out to you? He said, I'm not seeing what you're telling me. He said, look at what I see right here on this paragraph, this sentence, this line, right here. Pontiac Le Mans. Oh, he said, what are you doing right now? He said, nothing. Let's go down to the dealership at the Pontiac place. They happened to be in Charlotte at the time, so they went by and got Waddell Wilson, who was the crew chief slash engine builder. Waddell, what are you doing right now? Nothing. Come get in the car with us. We're going to go take a ride. Okay. So they didn't tell anybody what they were doing. They just wanted to go see this Pontiac Le Mans on the showroom floor. So Davey Allison, Bobby Allison, Waddell Wilson go to this dealership. They look at this car, not really telling anybody what they're thinking. Oh, so you want to buy Pontiac Le Mans? They said, we might be. (laughs) (laughs) So they pull out the ruler, pull out the the tape measure, you know, and they're really thinking about this. Well, lo and behold, story short, they end up buying the Pontiac Le Mans and they show up at Daytona with it. And it gets everybody all up in arms about what are you doing? Why are you here with this car? You can't run this car. Davey pulls out out of his back pocket, this page 32, whatever it was, paragraph four, line three, <laughs> says, Pontiac Le Mans. They didn't even have templates for it. So that NASCAR had to go make templates for this car. Right. And the thing just ran away with, it was so, again, long story short, it won everything. And as it took, as it came out in 91, or excuse me, 81, Richard Petty wins the race. And it was a gas fuel mileage issue with, with the car. Had that not been the case, Bobby would have won the race that that year. Mm-hmm. By Atlanta, NASCAR basically, in essence, figured out a way to to make it uncompetitive. Uncompetitive, because, <laughs> yeah, because it was. But but it all goes back to what we were talking about with this particular race car, and the fact that 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 was such a huge change to go from a 1980 Monte Carlo to a 1981 Monte Carlo or Pontiac Le Mans because the car was so much smaller, and so different from what they had uh, envisioned but it had to be done because it was a car that the cars they were racing in nascar at the time were obsolete they needed to do something and kind of where we are now because in this particular car we're talking about that we're going to be running in 2022 quite different than what we're talking about then because those cars could be bought off the showroom floor these cars can't but this particular car uh it will appeal to someone in the say 18 to 30 age group. And it's something that you would love to see win on a racetrack. It's something that's sleek and cool and it's just different. Mm -hmm. And so that's another part of what NASCAR is trying to do is attract a younger race fan. And so it's, it's part of their science and part of their strategy. And I, you know, I think 
if it performs on the racetrack like they say it will, it should be fine. But it just goes back to what it's what reminded me of 1981 and what they went through there. And and there's been a lot of challenges with this car, but as it was in 1981 when they went to that car. But we we got over the the mountains and the valleys, and it was a great race car, and they ran it a, a, for many years after that. So enough enough of my rambling. But it just came to mind when you said that about about 1981 and the challenges that NASCAR faced and, and the teams got through it and everything worked out. That's why he's the best NASCAR historian around. Trust me, folks. I mean, the, he comes up with these, these stories, these are incredible stories, but I, I gotta, let, let's go back for one thing. And I, and I, I want to get moving on the other things we were going to talk about. Yeah, yeah sure. But I want to ask you about this though. You know, um, we've heard since the car of tomorrow debuted, you know, what was it? Uh, 15 years ago or 13 years ago, whatever it was that, the reason NASCAR designs new cars every six, seven, eight years, whatever the case is, it's to make the racing more competitive for the smaller, less funded teams. I keep hearing about this car, the new next gen car, and I keep hearing that this is going to be the, the, the thing that's going to be the big equalizer. You know, we've heard it before, but this one seems to have a lot of teeth to that rumor that, you know, the, the smaller teams, let's say like the, um, you know, um, JTG Doherty or something like that, they're going to be able to, you know, be equal with, you know, or close to, or much closer, I should say, to uh, teams like uh, Hendrick or, or Childress, the things I like have, than they've been in the past. Now, the, th- the two things that stick out to me, though, are one, can the bigger teams still have an advantage because they can build more cars as opposed to the little teams? Or two, will the little teams really be able to have that advantage, the rumored advantage, and regardless of how many teams or how many cars the big teams build? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And, and you know, it's always, always, always been a problem uh, in, in NASCAR. Well, any, let me not, I won't say NASCAR, any type of motorsports to keep the costs down. It's always been that way. And I guess, I guess the question is, we'll, we'll see. I hate to say it that way. Mm-hmm. Two words. We'll see. Um, you know, I remember this is something that comes to mind that happened with me. And I was uh, 14, 15 when this happened, I was at North Wilkesboro Speedway. It's a roundabout way to answer your question. I was at North Wilkesboro Speedway and I just, after the race, they let the fans go down in the infield. And I happened up on a conversation with, between Benny Parsons and DK Ulrich. Benny Parsons was driving for DK, uh, for uh, LG Duet and DK had his own race team. And I was going to get an autograph from Benny before, long before I started writing. Mm-hmm. And they, the discussion they were having was about the cost of racing. <laughs> it's ironic that you asked the question. Because DK was an independent driver. When I say independent, not having any kind of a backing from any of the Chevy Ford, mm-hmm. you know, factory teams. And he was talking about having to buy a camshaft uh, or crankshaft, maybe it was, and how co- how costly it was. Mm-hmm. And, and even back in then, and if I was 14, 15, that would have been 1975. So even back in those days, and relative to what money was then before the inflation and all that, they were still having trouble paying for parts. Right. So right. I think motorsports will always have some degree of having to come up with money to pay for parts. So even in 2022, 
the back marker teams are, and even the even the Rick Hendricks, uh, Rick Hendrick teams, and the top teams are always going to have to pay for parts. Um, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, I hope that this car will equal that financial field a little bit because um, you know if you're, I guess if you're ordering parts from various one place for rear ends, one place for engines, one place for bodies. Maybe that will help, but it's always been a problem trying to keep the cost down of cars, even when you're on local levels. When I drove race cars on a local level back in the late 70s, parts were always expensive. And motor people who drive race cars and maintain race cars, even on a local level, they'll tell you even today, it's very, very expensive. And you just pray the guy racing beside you doesn't put you in the wall because you're done for the season. I mean, it's always so expensive. I wish it wasn't. When you play basketball or baseball, you buy your shoes, you buy your basketball, and you rent some time on the gym floor. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's right. motorsports is parts, and and that's it, it's costly. Exactly, exactly. And they're very good observations for sure. You know, and and I think that as we go forward, I mean, you know, the the next gen car is so um, is so revolutionary that. I don't think a lot of fans and maybe even teams and drivers are not going to really get to um, fully understand or appreciate whatever adjective you want to use about how good this car is going to be, the potential it has to be until we're maybe probably, I'd be willing to say as much as 10 races into the season. I think that it's going to take that long for a lot of teams to really realize what they've got, what the car is capable of. I mean, you know, you're uh, in that first 10 races, I, I think we've got a couple of road course races in there. So that's going to certainly see how good these cars are from a, as you know, as you put it earlier, the sports car like feel that these cars have, but at the same time, you know, how are they going to be aerodynamically, uh, you know, running at Daytona or Talladega, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to, it, but I, like I said, I, I think there's going to be a very long learning curve. There's nothing wrong with that. And believe me, there's nothing wrong with a long learning curve, but I think that, you know, if a, if a small team, for whatever reason, figures this out sooner than the big team, that could really be a great equalizer, too. Eventually, I think the big teams are going to obviously overtake the smaller teams, like you're saying. But mm-hmm. I'd, like to see, I'd like to see the smaller teams, you know, have some surprises. I mean, like last year, or the, well, the, earlier this year, I should say, but, you know, this past season, I mean, with no disrespect to him, who would have predicted that Michael McDowell would have won the Daytona 500? You know, I mean, so I think that we're, we're kind of looking at a, a similar situation, not only in the 2022 Daytona 500, but also for the next 10, 12 races after that. I mean, we could probably go as far as saying that, you know, the first half of the regular season, the first 13 races before the, you know, the, the engineers, the drivers, everybody else really figures out the, the, um, ability of this car because it's it's so varied it's so unique it's so different it's going to take a little while but i'm i'm glad it's going to take a little while because that's what makes racing so unique if you know what i'm saying sure i do yeah one more quick thing we'll move sure. on i promise sure i remember one time buddy baker told me we're sitting in the infield uh, media center at charlotte and he said back when he had a race team his secretary walked in and said here's that bill you were looking for and he said, oh, this must be for the whole whole case of camshafts. And she said, no, buddy, that's just for one. And, <laughs> and he, he said he he said he said lost his coffee all over the, what, the shirt and pants he was wearing. He said <laughs> it was just astronomically high. And he said, that's why I'm not a, tree, a team owner anymore. He said it was a, it just blew my mind that this this number and it was he said, I don't remember the number, but it was really high. He said, no, buddy, that's just for the one. 
Wow. <laughs> it's not it's wow. not for the case right exactly, <laughs> exactly. so it's just really high parks are really high especially in racing so right exactly all right let's move on to the second segment of the show this is where we like to talk about the episode number and how it correlates to car numbers this is episode 41 by the way ben this is our 11th show together already we started episode wow. 31 and we're now at 41 so yeah it's been a great time so far looking forward to continuing on for a long long time but Episode 41 and car number 41 has, has had a pretty colorful history in NASCAR and a number of uh, uh, very recognizable names have driven the number 41 car. So I'm going to leave that to you because you are our, you're our historian, you're our researcher. So tell me about the 41 car. Well, the 41 does have uh, quite a few winners and there's a surprise here that many fans may not realize. Actually, 29 victories for the 41 uh, Curtis Turner had 12. Uh, and you know what? Richard Petty, believe it or not, people think he won all 40, all 200 of his victories with the 43. That's not correct. He actually had six of his wins in the 41. Uh, and also uh, there was uh, uh, Jim Pascal, who actually had three victories uh, in the 41, and all three of those came for Petty Enterprises. Uh, and then there was Cole Custer, who is the per driver who has the most recent victory in the 41. At, that came on July 12th, 2020 at Kentucky Speedway driving for Stuart Haas. We've also got Kurt Busch with uh, six victories in the number 41, including the Daytona 500. Mm -hmm. And A.J. Foyt won for Wood Brothers Racing on July 4th, 1965. Uh, for Wood Brothers racing down in the Firecracker 400 in 1965 at Daytona. So, but yeah, that was a fact I had forgotten about, but Richard Petty actually won six times driving the number 41 for Petty Enterprises. And uh, I just thought that was kind of cool. I, you know, a lot of people think that he won all 200 in the 43, and that's not correct. He did. Well was yeah, it earlier so, in his career that he won in the 41 or, you know? Yes, it was I, actually early sixties, 1963 and 1964. I think he had one victory in 64 in the 41. And, and the way that worked was, uh, as we've said this on the show before, Lee Petty, his father had three uh, cup series, then grand national championships. And that number 42 that he ran in his career came off the, uh, the, the last two numerals of a North Carolina license plate. Mm -hmm. And they were, he had 42, 41, 40, <clears throat> 43, 44, 45. And so a lot of times say he had a problem, Richard may have had a problem with the 43 car and they would bring all those cars to a racetrack. Mm -hmm. And so he said, okay, well, the 43 has got a broken camshaft. So let's just put you in the 41 tonight at this little dirt track. And so, okay. So he'd jump in the 41 car and he'd win in it. So they'd share those numbers around a little bit, but the vast, vast majority of the victories that came with Richard was in the 43. And as time went on, uh, you know, from say 66 on, he basically did run the 43, mm -hmm. but, but there was a few races in the early sixties. He did run the 41 and, and I think he ran the 41 actually 22 times, uh, but he only won in the 41, six times. Wow. So there I, you go. I didn't know that. Why? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a great bar bet. You know, for listeners, I mean, if you go to a bar, I mean, you want to make some money, there you go. Just use, follow Ben's rule yeah. or Ben's information. You'll definitely be a, a bar bet winner for sure. I mean, because yeah. like you said, I mean, everybody seems to think that 
Richard Petty won all 200 of his races in the 43, and obviously he didn't. So good, it's yeah. a good stab. But you know, yeah. the 41 though, <clears throat> excuse me, has kind of a, you know, it's it's got a successful history with 29 wins, but it's also has a little bit of a uh, a dark side, a, a tragic yeah. side, if you will. A couple of things happened, um, you know, over the years. Tell us about those, Ben. Yeah, it, it does have a, a sad story attached to the 41 and. This happened uh, May 5th, 1974 uh, at Talladega Super Speedway. Uh, there was a day where, uh, let me paint the picture for you. It was a day when there was rain. It was one of those intermittent rain delay type days where uh, it would rain a little bit. They would dry the track. It rained a little bit more. Uh, a little bit of backstory. The race was won by David Pearson over Benny Parsons. Uh, Pearson took the the, the lead was 16 laps to go, but there was a little car. We've talked about this car before, the American Motors Matador. IndyCar standout Gary Bittenhausen was driving the car that day. Later on, Bobby Allison drove it some that year, was switching back and forth between the Matador and his own Chevrolet. Uh, but that day, Gary Bittenhausen was in the car. Uh, Gary had led 35 laps of this 188-lap uh, race. And uh, so he comes into the pits and there was a rookie in the race, Grant Adcox from the uh, uh, down in Georgia is from where Grant was from. He was a rookie driver and he came down pit road uh, after a car had blown an engine. This car had come down pit road and it was dropping some oil. Now, keep in mind that pit road has already wet anyway because of the rain that had been falling and you know, kind of a misty rain, but at times, but they had dried the track several times, a little bit of water still there and no disrespect to Grant at all. But uh, this is back in the days before pit road speed. So there were no pit road speeds in 1974. Uh, that didn't come until 1990 when there was a, uh, a tragedy at Atlanta Motor Speedway involving uh, Ricky Rudd and Bill Elliott uh, and a crew member was killed there uh, until, so this is many years before that occurred. So what happened was that there was a crew member by the name of uh, Don Miller working for Team Penske and the Matador team. Uh, sadly, uh, Don lost his leg in this particular crash. Uh, Grant was driving the number 41 Chevrolet. Uh, no, no fault of Grant's at all. I mean, he was just coming in for a pit stop and lost control of the car because of the oil and water on pit road. Uh, Don survived the crash and went on to become a, an executive for P Team Penske and just a, a remarkable man because he's a mentor of mine. And every time you see Don, I always have, a, even today, I always has a great smile on his mm -hmm. face and just a tremendous, tremendous individual. I love him dearly. He's just a great friend and but it's so sad that that happened. And, and uh, someone that should be credited with saving Don's life that day was, uh, you know, uh, Buddy Parrott, who was a longtime uh, crew, crew chief uh, for many teams uh, and a very beloved winning crew chief and Buddy Parrott that he pulled his belt off and did a tourniquet to, to save his life. And, but yeah, it was just a terrible, tragic situation. And, Sadly, we lost Grant Adcox in 1989 at the final race in Atlanta. Uh, I believe suffered a heart attack in the race car and crashed, and uh, we lost Grant that day. But Grant here was a multi-time ARCA champion and uh, did also run in the 
in the Cup Series for many years too. But yeah, just a tragic accident. No fault of, of Grant at all. He just came down to make a pit stop, and then and the oil and water on pit road caused him to lose control of the car. And uh, yeah, and that that was just a tragic day. But uh, Don uh, still around and uh, still works. I believe some some doing some things for Roger Penske. I believe he's retired, but he still still works for Roger. So doing some things. So excuse me. That, that I mean, but now the 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 um, the forty one car also was kind of the redemption, if you will, for another driver um, who had been for lack of a better word, excommunicated, you might say, from NASCAR yeah. for, for a couple of years. Tell us about that story. Yeah, sure does. Curtis Turner uh, actually came to NASCAR uh, June 19th, 1949, when NASCAR was started. But he was one of these uh, moonshine types that, you know, he was all the time sort of pushing the envelope with NASCAR and Bill France Sr., who formed NASCAR then. And and it really came to a head in 1961 when he was trying to form a union in NASCAR. And that didn't set at all very well with, with France. And uh, he and actually Tim Flock were, were trying to do that. And both were uh, banned from NASCAR for life. And Tim uh, said, fine, I'm done. I don't want to ever come back, even though he was uh, Tim and and uh, Curtis were reinstated. But Tim didn't take him up on the offer. Uh, Curtis came back in 1965, partly because they needed a, a superstar to come back to NASCAR because the ticket sales simply weren't where they wanted them to be. And that was uh, France's way of maybe getting some fans to come back. So he reinstated him. And that was the third race back for, for Curtis. Curtis was turning cartwheels because he really, really wanted to come back to NASCAR. Uh, all forgiven. Everything is well. And so in the third start back, he goes to New Rockingham, North Carolina Motor Speedway, drives the number 41 Ford for Wood Brothers Racing and comes back and wins the race. That was October 31st, 1965. And so puts 41 back in victory lane. And that was the 12th time, I believe, that uh, Curtis took the, the 41 to victory lane. So uh, all well and good. And, you know, but there, there was some bitterness between Curtis and, and France uh, for many years until France, actually four years, uh, and France finally said, okay, you can come back. You're helping me. I'm helping you. And, and he come back, comes back and wins the race uh, there at Rockingham. And uh, fans loved it. I mean, it was a very festive uh, Cinderella type story. Uh, and he goes back to victory lane and all was well. Now, you mentioned about Tim Flack didn't come back. Why Why was that? I, I think Tim just uh, didn't think he should have been banned to start with. Mm -hmm. And even though France uh, told him, you know, all is well, I'd like for you to come back. I, I, Tim didn't, Tim said, no, I should have not been banned to start with. And uh, Tim decided not to, even though Tim did work for Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, as an executive there for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, he he just didn't he didn't take France up on his offer to to come back and uh, Tim was also a, a NASCAR champion a couple of times pleasant wonderful man I, I loved meeting him and you talk about stories I have no stories compared to Tim Tim had some <laughs> wonderful wonderful stories about racing in NASCAR and and wrote a wrote a great book years later and and 
sadly he's no longer with us either but uh, i tell you just a tremendous tremendous friend but yeah he just decided it was he didn't think he should have been banned to begin with and he's like well thanks for the offer but no thanks that's amazing that he didn't come back i mean because yeah. you know racers that that racing passion is in your blood no matter if you're 20 or 40 or 60 or even 80 i mean you you, yeah. you want to race and it takes a lot of um a lot of you know, courage, I guess, is probably a good way to say it, that right. to, you know, to, to turn down well, an offer like that. Yeah, well, true. And you know that in, in that in that union situation I was telling you about, it was more Curtis's idea than Tim's. And I think, in all honesty, I I don't think Tim deserved to be uh, banned from NASCAR to begin with. It was more Curtis's idea. And maybe maybe Curtis did, but I don't think Tim deserved to be part of that uh ban being banned from nascar and tim to was begin with a, tim was a big star at that time too wasn't he yeah he was uh he was and uh it was uh it was just a situation that i think tim sort of got caught up in and he, he just didn't think he should be banned from nascar and i i sort of agree i uh I don't think he should have. And then when the invitation was extended back to him, he's like, no, thank you. Cause I should have not been banned to begin with. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. exactly. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the final uh, episode or the final uh, segment of today's show. And um, we always have this, uh, it's a weekly feature. We call it the driver of the week. And this week, the driver of the week is Ben. Who is that driver of the week? This, the driver of the week this week is a gentleman by the name of Jim Pascal. And Jim is, uh, f- was originally from High Point, North Carolina, uh, a great, actually great driver that just grew up uh, racing on the local tracks uh, around the High Point area, Winston-Salem area, Lexington, North Carolina, uh, before he went to uh, the first race on June 19th, 1949 at NASCAR. And when I say before NASCAR, you know, there were a lot of tracks around uh, in 46, 47, 48, you know, even Martinsville, 40, 1947, I think he raced up there before NASCAR was uh, formed. And, and a lot of these guys, uh, they ran moonshine and they they just, when they come out of, of World War II, this is how the story goes. You know, you, you have the all the uh, excitement or the adrenaline or all the you know, being involved in, in saving our country during World War II. So you come back and, well, what are you going to do? I mean, you, you that adrenaline is still flowing. You want to do something exciting. You don't want to just come home to to grow corn or sell ice cream or whatever. <laughs> right. It's like, I got to do something. I got to, I got to stay, I got to do something. So, you know, when got, you go down to the local gas station and you say, well, my Plymouth, I'm certain will outrun your Chevrolet. And the guy says, well, no, my, my Ford's pretty fast. And so they come up with someone's cornfield and that's, or someone's pasture. And well, let's go down to that oak tree and I'll go around the oak tree and come back to this poplar tree. And before you know it, you have a race. Right. And, and there's money on the barrel head. And this is how this all started long before NASCAR got started. And there were a lot of different, uh, sanctions, if you will, unofficial or official before NASCAR, NASCAR was not the first one. And so you have different entities and, and the problem you had with those situations was that you might have 10 or 12 or 15 cars and a promoter 
would promote this particular race, but then the promoter might not be around by the time the checkered flag fell. (laughs) He'd be in his Buick or Pontiac and he's halfway down the road with all the money. Right. So what Bill France did was he was the guy who you uh, put everybody together and promised to, I'll be here when you get done with the race, we'll split the money. So Jim Pascal was one of those drivers who would be, uh, racing before Bill France and NASCAR came along at these smaller racetracks. So when he did finally get to NASCAR, he made a name for himself and, uh, did, did quite well, um, uh, as far as what he put together, as far as the the victories. And I think you, I, I had sent you some stats there as far as the number of wins. I think he had 25 victories, uh, I don't have them in front of me. 25 wins, 149 top fives, 230 top tens. This is all out of 421 starts. So he had, he finished in the top 10 more than half the time that he started a race. And he also had 12 pole positions, you know, and, and with no, this is no disrespect to Jim Paxkill, but, you know, I know his name has been on the um, NASCAR hall of fame ballot, but I really haven't heard much about, why he has not been um, considered, you know, a, a stronger candidate, I guess you might say, because I mean, anybody that gets 25 wins in the early days of NASCAR, that's to me, that's a big thing in my book. And uh, are you, are you kind of surprised that he has not made it to the hall of fame? In yeah, NASCAR? I, I am. And I can, I think I could tell you partly why he was, he was a very quiet uh, behind the scenes sort of person. Right. He loved driving race cars, but he did. He wasn't. He wasn't a Daryl Waltrip. He wasn't someone a self promoter very much. He uh, he just he would just get out there and do his job and win races. But then, interestingly enough, in 1972, he retired from NASCAR. His final race was the 1972 World 600 that he won a couple of times, 1964 and 66, I believe. I know for sure 1964, he won that race. Then he retired and he raised cattle. He owned his own trucking company. Uh, It just kind of fell back into the shadows, uh, very much like what Rex White did. Rex White actually did the same thing, started his own trucking company and just kind of fell back into being just a normal, you know, individual, not really a superstar then. And, that's the same thing with Jim Pascal. And sadly, he passed away on July 5th, 2004 of cancer at the age of 77 and is uh, uh, buried in Jackson Creek, North Carolina. And just very quiet sort of guy. That was what's so interesting about him. He could drive 200 miles an hour and win races, 25 races. And then he just kind of slipped back and decided to go drive a truck for a living. I just think that's interesting to to be able to be a superstar so to speak, from 49 to 72, and then just step back and just be a normal guy. But there were so many of those guys in the 60s like that 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 could uh, perform so well on a racetrack, uh, fender to fender on a short track or a super speedway, and then just shake hands with a few friends and step away, and he never really heard a lot about him anymore. And he's very much that way. He sort of slipped out of, out of the spotlight and went to do his own thing. It's just right. very interesting. 
Well, I, I would like to see him, you know, uh, in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I mean, yeah. you know, as you, some of the notes you sent me, I mean, he was elected or in, inducted rather into the Stock Car Racing Hall of Fame in 1977. And like, as you said, he won the World 600 in 1964 and 1967 at Charlotte Speedway. He competed in the first 18 Southern 500s from 1950 to 1967 and won 16 of 73 Grand American races from 1969 to 1972. This is the thing that that really, though, uh, the note that you sent me that I really, this amazes me because uh, how long his record stood. You know, in 1967, when he won uh, the World 600, he established a race record of leading 335 laps. And that uh, record stood until 2016 when Martin Truex Jr. led 392 laps uh, in the Coca-Cola 600. That to me is just an amazing step. I mean, that, and that's from 67 to, to uh, 2016. That's almost 50 years that that record stood. That, that, mm-hmm. that, says, a, that says a heck of a lot to me that, about, uh, you know, how he was able to not only to stay ahead of everybody in such, you know, the longest and most grueling race on the circuit, but that, you know, he did it in, in you know, in very, um, you know, nondescript fashion, if you will. I mean, like you said, he was a very much of a quiet kind of guy and he just went out there. It was kind of like a, like a worker bee. He went out there and did his job and, you know, didn't, you know, didn't uh, do a Muhammad Ali kind of thing or a Daryl Walter kind of thing. He didn't pound, you know, pound his hands on his chest or anything like that. I mean, he just went out and did his thing and, and you got to give the guy a lot of credit for that. Yeah. And uh, the worker bee thing is a, an excellent way to describe him because I, I did meet him a couple of times and I just remember him being so nondescript. If you, if you had him in a crowd of people and I, and that's where I met him, he was uh, I'm inducted into the national motorsports press association. Uh, I think in the mid nineties mm-hmm. and there and just having a, you know, a Coke. And I mean, if you didn't know who he was, you'd think you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't pick him out. And right. It's like, oh, hey, how are you? You know, one of those types. And um, I don't know. He's just, that's what, that was what I learned. I, I thought he is such a great person. I mean, just a gentleman and, he, he, you know, very shy, very quiet sort of guy. To me, that's, that was my impression. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm standing in the midst of some royalty here that's done so much in racing. And if someone had not pointed him out to me, I would have not noticed who he was. And, Anyway, I just, that's, that was, he was just very quiet, very nice, very nice guy. And that's what's so amazing to me about these drivers of the sixties, Rex White, I keep bringing him up, but he's the same way. If you didn't know who he was, he's not the type of guy who would just like say, pound his chest and look at me, look how great I am. A lot of those guys were not that way, but they enjoyed what they were doing and admirable and to the respect. And I respect him so much because you got to remember those cars they drove in the sixties were not easy to drive. Right. right. They were, there were not no disrespect. I mean, I love the guys that are driving today, but I, those cars, oh my gosh, they were really, really hard to drive in those days. And so, I mean, those bull, those dirt bull rings and those super speedways, especially when the original Darlington raceway is not like it was today. It was like mm-hmm. a single groove. And I've heard so many guys, Bobby Allison, Donnie Allison, Richard Petty, Kale, said, if you didn't hit the third turn guardrail, you weren't doing it right. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like they described it to me like if it was like someone with a with a loader d- dropping a load of wood in your trunk of your car. That's what it felt like when he went in turn three, like boom, 
you know, and then you did it and then you go on. That was the feeling the guardrail hit that because you'd see the right side of the guard or the back quarter panel scraped up all the time. Yep. That's what it was, that, that wrong that feel. <laughs> and it said, if you didn't hit it, you weren't going in the turn right. Well, that's the way they were set up. Right. You right, know, right. and so I, I don't know, I'm rambling, but I just, you know, those guys, they, they had a hard life. I mean, it was like a gypsy life chasing 54, 56 races a year. And then be able to win in those cars. I mean, I just have immense, immense respect for those guys. You know, as you were talking there, Ben, you can't you kind of triggered a thought in my mind. You know, and this is no disrespect to the panel. There's 50, I think 50 members that vote for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. But I wonder if there should be some consideration to possibly um only allowing voters to who have been covering the sport such as yourself for so many years to vote for the past heroes of the sport like a Jim Pascal because a lot of the younger voters and there's there's a few there's not a lot but there's a few you know maybe weren't around or weren't you know didn't see Jim Pascal race whereas you know guys that have been in the sport for you know 50 60 years you know uh, either as um, officials or media or what have you did. I, I wonder if there's a, a way that NASCAR could, um, uh, without singling any people out or, or keeping any people out, maybe develop a system that were kind of like Major League Baseball, where you have the Veterans yeah. Committee. You know, I mean, I, I wonder if they could do that because I think, I mean, look at Jim Pascal's numbers. I mean, 25 wins, 149 top fives, 230 top tens in. 421 starts. I mean, that to right. me is NASCAR Hall of Fame worthy. What, what's your Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I've always said that, and I'm not saying this just because I've been in it a long time. I mean, I've been in it 48 years counting being a fan. But I've always said that to be in a voting position, you should be able to, I think, to say, yeah, to be on that panel, you should be involved in at least 30 years or 40 years because you're right. There's some folks they are just, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but they don't have a clue who Jim Pascal is. Exactly. Exactly. They just don't know who he is. And I, I don't mean that dis they just don't know because they've not seen him or don't know who they've not had contact with him or whatever. And uh, I've been on that voting panel twice because I was president of the national motorsports press association. That's the only way that I've been invited to be there. Mm -hmm. And, um, but maybe there's, I don't know, I think longevity or history or time in the sport or those things should be considered. Yes, I do. I'm not, not just because you're with a publication that has so many numbers, however they figure it out. I don't know how they figure it out, but I think time in the sport should be considered. Yes, because you, uh, you have day-to-day uh, -day contact with them. You've seen it with the time that you've been in the sport, you've witnessed it or you, whatever, whatever that criteria needs to be. But yeah, Jim is a perfect example of that. And, uh, you know, being able to see them actively drive on the racetrack or yeah. inter intermingle with them or write articles about them, you need to know some history about them. And, and I don't mean that disrespectfully to anyone on there. I just think that's a great criteria to have time in the sport for sure. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Ben, as usual, this hour has flown by and, you know, just we could go for another three, four more hours, but yeah, we, you know, we, 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 have we to, always have fun. Exactly. Exactly. So 
Well, listen, we, uh, we've had a great show here and looking forward to next week's edition of A Lifetime in NASCAR. And uh, we are still working on getting uh, guests to join us. Hopefully, we can get that in the next couple of weeks and get that all uh, figured out. But uh, I'll tell you, I mean, uh, you know, Ben has so many good stories. And I, I think that, you know, not only do I enjoy them, I'm sure the, the fans and the listeners enjoy it. And then when we get to start getting guests, we're going to have to take it to the next level, too, as well. Yes. So, um, so, Ben, great show as always. Uh, appreciate it. And we will talk to you next week. And I'll talk to you, all the folks here listening in on the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. Take care, everyone. We'll talk to you later. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.